0: Well, good morning, Bay Hills. It is good to see you. Grab your study guide that's in your program. So we're getting all our props up here on stage and uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. As we get started and we're continuing our series, uh, Whoville Christmas, answering the Who questions about Christmas, we're going to start kind of with an obvious question, kind of a no brainer. Would you agree? That the more planning and the more preparing you do for an event, I don't care what event it is, the more preparing and planning you do for an event, typically that gives you the greatest probability of success. Would you agree with that? Right? So the more you plan, so the more preparing and planning you've done for a final exam, I know we have some students here from college or high school, the more preparing you do for a final exam, in theory, the greater probability you have of getting a good grade in that final and a good grade in the class, right? How about if, when, when you got married? You guys remember preparing and planning for the wedding day? Oh, my goodness gracious, right? You got, uh, where are we going to do the ceremony and then the invitations and what are people going to wear and what are they going to eat? And I mean, it's just amazing how much preparing and planning that a couple will do. Why? Because the more they do it, the greater the probability that that day turns out the way they want it to turn out, right? How about preparing for a, a, a new child, right? Especially if it's your first one. Right. You got to get the bassinet and you got to get the crib and you got to get the high chair. If you don't prepare for that, you're in trouble. Right. How about preparing and planning for a job interview or preparing and planning for a vacation? All these things matter. How about preparing and planning for Christmas? How much of that you done the last couple of weeks? Right. It starts early. It starts preparing for and planning as we decorate our homes. Right. I had someone in in our neighborhood that put out their Christmas decorations, uh, the day after Halloween, I walked by and kicked them down. You idiots. What are you guys doing way too early, right? Then you have to start decorating and planning for, for the inside. And then you got to decorate the tree. Then you've got all the preparations that come with a Christmas card. Do we do a Christmas card? Do we not do a Christmas card? Do we a picture card? If we do a picture card, then we have to decide what picture. Then we decide what picture. Then we've got to go to Snapfish. Then we've got to put out Snapfish. Do we say something? Do we not say something? Then who do we mail it to? And it just goes on and on and on, right? We send out Christmas cards. Then we got the Christmas gifts, right? People want to know, well, what do you want? I want to get, what do you want? And if you don't tell them, you know, what you want, because you want to get gifts for your loved ones, for your family, for sure for your pastor. I mean, what do they want? You got to put this all together. What do you going to get them gifts? And then you got to buy gifts for everybody, Right. You got to see you on Amazon for 17 hours trying to sift through, figure out what to get. And it takes a lot of preparation. Then there's preparation for where we're going to travel to. If you're not here in town, where we're going to travel to. And if I have to have flights, when are we going to leave? And what are we going to do? Are we going to drive? Or maybe you're not leaving, but you're having people coming over to the house. So now we're going to to prepare what are we going to eat and what they're staying over, what room they're going to stay in. There's just an immense amount of preparation that goes into getting ready for Christmas. Would you agree? I'm not against it. I'm just acknowledging the obvious. Do you know that God did much the same the very first Christmas? He put a tremendous amount of effort into preparing, not the event, because that he had taken care of preparing that the message would have the impact that he desired. Now, he did it through an individual. If you have your Bibles open by now to Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three, the title for me, as we begin reading, is John the Baptist prepares the way. Now, we understand that John the Baptist comes after Christmas. That's how we picture because Luke chapter one, Luke chapter two, that's the Christmas story, right? And then after that comes John. He prepares the way so people can receive the message. Time out. Not so fast. I think if you realize and you look carefully at what's going on in chapters one and two, the quote Christmas story, you realize how much John the Baptist is actually in right in the middle of the Christmas story. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it on the screen. Luke chapter one has two births that are foretold. First of all, John the Baptist's birth is foretold. It starts with John the Baptist, not Jesus. (coughs) Then Jesus birth is foretold. Still in Luke chapter 1, Zachariah, that's John's dad, he sings a song because he's all excited because he's going to give birth to a son, his, his, his wife. And then Mary, Jesus' mom, she sings a song because <coughs> she's excited that they're going to have a kid. Then you move to, to Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist is born, and just after that, Jesus is born. Then you get to John chapter 3, that's where John begins his ministry, he prepares the way. You want to know the very first thing Jesus did in his adult ministry, very first thing? He went to John and got baptized. Now, that's a whole different story. But you look at that screen, you tell me whether or not John fits in the Christmas story. Luke spends as much time talking about John the Baptist in the Christmas story as he does Jesus. So if that's the case, why, why, why doesn't John the Baptist get a little figurine in the nativity set? Why don't we sing carols about John the Baptist? Everyone else gets a carol, Right. Why John the Baptist? We skip over him. You know, we have a Christmas play. The kids get to dress up as shepherds. Why does no one ever dress up as John the Baptist? I don't know what the reason is, but I do know the reason John uh, Luke includes him in the story and why from Luke's perspective, he's so important. Here it is for the Christmas message to have the kind of impact that God desires. He requires and is depending on someone to prepare the way he's he's requiring and depending someone to help other people Come closer to Jesus. That very first Christmas, he was depending on John the Baptist. Guess who's he's depending on this Christmas? You. I don't know why God didn't decide to communicate his message by just writing it in the sky and skipping over us altogether. But for whatever reason, he didn't do that. He chose to work with us to spread his gospel message. He's depending on us. To prepare the way. Now, we're going to get to this whole, um, uh, this whole question a little bit. This idea of who's willing to prepare the way. We're going to spend some time not skipping John the Baptist this morning. So go back in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to start. The story of the birth of John. And here's what we read. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the time of King Herod, he's the bad guy, right? He goes crazy in the Gospel of Matthew. In the time of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. Named Zachariah. That's the dad of John the Baptist. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. He starts out by telling us, hey, they've got good heritage. They come from good people, right? Both of them, it says, were righteous in the sight of the Lord. This is an important detail because Zechariah is living during a time that's called the 400 years of silence so you've got the old testament prophets you got the old testament where god is speaking to the old testament prophets he's speaking to his people and then god gets fed up with his people he's like right you want want to follow me fine you have your way and there's 400 years of silence between the old testament and when jesus arrives 400 years of basically darkness But the point is, is in the spite of that darkness, in spite of living during a time and age where people are not following God, there are still people like Zachariah and Elizabeth who are true to God's word, who follow him. And it's much like the region we live in. We live in the darkest area spiritually in the country. That does not mean we cannot live for Jesus and be committed to him just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now notice how the story, or these couple verses ends. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's command and decrees blamelessly, but, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. For those of you who like to write down notes, here's the first thing that you have to understand. Some of us have big buts. You know, someone with a big butt. Don't look at them. Don't just somebody look. It's one T, not two T's. One T. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. You, you think about your life and it's pretty good. You're fairly healthy. You're fairly successful. You're fairly wealthy. You didn't walk to church. You drove to church. I mean, it'd be nice to have a new car, but you, you, none of you slept on the floor last night or outside. You all slept on a mattress, right? None of you showed up to church this morning, hungry on purpose, Maybe you are hungry, but you have food in your fridge. Every one of us has food in our fridge. In other words, my point is, life's pretty decent. I mean, I got some stuff, but life's pretty decent. But, but, life's good, but I want a new job. Life's good, but I want a new boss. Life's good, but I drive a crappy car. Life's good, but I want a bigger house. Life's good, but I want new clothes. Life's good, but I want a bigger TV. Life's good, but I want to be married. Life's good, but I don't have any kids. Life's good, but I have kids, but I want different kids. I mean, it just goes on and on. And instead of taking the time to look at everything you do have, you live, but... But... Goodness gracious me. Now, I'm not saying you're not allowed, we're not allowed to want a new car. Because maybe we do drive a crappy car. I'm not saying you're not allowed to do that. I'm asking you, what are you focused on? What are you focused on? Because instead of focusing on everything we have, you do realize that a third of the world, one third has one pair of shoe in their closet. One. Goodness gracious me, some of us could wear a different pair of shoes for two months and not go through the same shoe. How about that? When's the last time you thanked them for all the shoes you have? We don't, you know why we don't? Because we take it for granted. That's it. We take for granted all the stuff that we have. Here's the lesson. Let's put it up on the screen. Instead of being grumpy for what you don't have, how about choose to be grateful for what you do have? I mean, if there's ever a time during the year to do this, I'm all for giving gifts. But one of the issues with giving gifts is is that is that at times we set our kids up for instead of focusing on all the toys they already have in their room, they're focused on the new toys that are under the tree. Now, hey, the kids aren't going to learn that lesson until we as adults learn that lesson. A lot of other good stuff that we have in our garage, in our house, we don't necessarily even need what's under the tree. That's my point. What are you focused on? Let me ask it a different way. I want you to imagine for a moment if what God allowed you to enjoy tomorrow was based upon what you thanked him for today. What would you have? And what would he take from you? If what he allowed you to enjoy tomorrow was based upon what you thanked him for today. Stop taking me for granted, says God. Stop taking everything I give you for granted. I've given you so much. I know. There's a couple things that you want. I get that. But how about focusing on everything I've given you? All the gifts I've given you. There's this video that I want you to watch that speaks to that. That, that helps us for a moment not take for granted The gifts that God has given us, the obvious gifts that God has given us that some of us haven't thanked him for in a long time. Let's watch this video and then we'll talk. That gives good perspective, doesn't it? Hey, I, I got it. We all want a couple of things we want tweaked in our life. That's not wrong. But take a moment, take some energy to focus on all the good gifts that God's given you. Don't be focused and grumpy on what you don't have. Be grateful for what you do have. Story goes on, verse 10, 8, sorry, Luke 1, verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So now at the time that that Zechariah is working as a priest, there are 20,000 priests in Israel, 20,000 on the payroll, right? And there were so many, they did subdivide them up into groups or divisions. You have that in this text. Every division, one week a year got to serve the temple, right? Because they can't all do it every week. One division every year. Then every week that your division got to serve on the temple, every day they would put a name out of the hat. And whosever name get picked out of the hat, that person was allowed to go into the temple on behalf of the people, representing the people, and present offerings to God. Does that understand what that means? So, these verses tell us, on the week that Zechariah's group or division was serving at the temple, one day, guess whose name they pulled out of the hat? His name. Oh my goodness gracious, can you imagine how excited he is? The odds were 1 in 1,200 that his name got picked. It's the highlight of your career as a priest. So he gets to go into the temple. On behalf of God's people. Now, the props that I have up here are trying to give you some idea of what was inside the temple. If you've never studied the Old Testament tabernacle or the Old Testament temple, it's very interesting. It can get kind of confusing and boring initially until you look at the symbolism. So you've got these different pieces of furniture, right? Over here, you had in the temple, you had a lampstand. A lampstand. Sorry about that, Tammy. Sounds like you're under interrogation, doesn't it? There was a lamp that was always on. They always had a lamp. It had seven candles, always on. You say, see it in some images and pictures. Now, why was the lamp always on? Well, there was a practical reason. The practical reason, they need to see, right? They, need, they didn't have electricity, so they turned the a candle on, they got a lamp. But there was a symbolic reason behind it that was much more significant. It's very. Do you guys remember the old Motel 6 commercials? Remember what they used to say? We'll leave the... We'll leave the lights on for you. Why? What was the point of that commercial? And that advertising. The point was this. I don't care when you show up, we'll give we'll give you a room. Whenever you show up, we'll be there for you. And the light always being on the temple was meant to communicate that to God's people, to you. I don't care when you show up, says God. I don't care how you show up. I will always have the light on for you. I won't be too busy for you. I won't be taking a nap. It won't be office hours. Start again on Monday. I'm always available to you. The lamplight is always on. Then you had... A basket with 12 loaves of bread in it. Now, today, I only have 12 pieces of loaves uh, because I couldn't get the loaves. By the way, how many of you have chosen to come to Bay Hills? Because not only you like the worship, the the sermon's decent, but there's free bread every Sunday. Come on, admit it, right? Well, this month, this week, one less loaf because I took it. It's up here. 12 pieces or loaves of bread. What did they represent? The 12 tribes of Israel. That's what it was meant to represent. And each it was meant to represent to all of God's tribes and all of God's people. I don't care what ethnicity you are, background you are. I am always available to you to feed you. I will always be there for you. I will provide for your needs. That's what this meant. Then you've got probably the most important piece of furniture in the in the tabernacle. Basically what this is, is this is a barbecue, but for them it was an altar. It was an altar because the priest would come in and on behalf of the people, the pastor, the priest would come in and sacrifice for the atonement and the forgiveness of all your sins. And we would place our faith on the blood of the lamb as forgiveness of sins. By the way, every once in a while, I have someone ask me, how do people in the Old Testament get saved? I mean, I know how they get saved in the New Testament. How do they get saved in the Old Testament? The same way. It's never changed. It's always been the same. How are you saved by faith in the blood of the lamb? Except in the Old Testament, it was a literal lamb. In the New Testament, it's the Lamb of God. But the altar was a very significant piece of, call it furniture, in the temple. Now, then you also had the basin of water. What the heck is a basin of water doing? Right? Well, we use the barbecue to cook burgers and hot dogs. But that's not what they used it for. They used it to slaughter an animal. And I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but that's messy. Right? So... uh, The priests are expected when they're done there to come over here and wash up. We don't want you going on with your pastor priestly duties with blood all over you, right? And then finally, over here, this is the table of incense. The best I could come up with was some Glade cashmere wood spray, right? This is what we got right here, right? Why incense? And by the way, look at the screen. That's what Zechariah was doing. It mentions the table of incense twice. You want to know why? Have you ever been to a farm that butchers animals? Do you you know when you're driving from L.A. to the Bay Area and you come across that whole area of, you know how it smells, right? You know what the table of incense was for? That stanks over there, man. That is not no good over there. That's all it was. It was practical. And so Zechariah is in the temple. Zechariah is right here when our story continues. And here's what we read. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. He's right over there. Zechariah saw him. He was startled and gripped with fear, as was Mary when she saw an angel, as were the shepherds when they saw angels. They created fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, up until this point, we don't know that he's prayed. We have to infer what he's prayed. Now, we know what his problem is. What's his problem? They don't have kids, right? And the answer that what the angel's going to tell him, tell, he's, you know what he's been praying for? God, I believe you can do the impossible. I know, I know we're a little bit older. I, I know you're not supposed to have kids when you're our age, but we still want a kid. Would you give us a kid, God? And he's praying away. He believes in the power of God. He believes that God can do the impossible. And the angel says, you, you know that pray, prayer you've been praying? God's heard you. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and you're going to call him John. Could there be a better day for Zechariah? He just got picked to go into the temple, one out of 1,200 priests, and now he's told by an angel he's going to have a son. Holy cow, this is a good day. And then we have verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Really, Zechariah? This is where you're going to go after the best day of your life? Do do you understand that his prayer can't coexist with his question? Does that make sense to you? His prayer is an expression of his faith. God, I believe you could do the impossible. That's what his prayer is. His question is an expression of his unbelief. Are you sure you can pull it off? I mean, you know how old we are. You can't have both. Now, let me say this. God can handle your questions. God can handle your doubts. We see that in the Gospels right at the end, when even the disciples were still wondering about this Jesus guy and rose from the dead. They could, he can handle that. So when you look carefully at this passage, what, you, what we begin to see, it's not just that he had questions in his mind. It's not just that he had some doubts in his heart. The real issue is what came out of his mouth. The real issue is that he verbalized certain things. See, problem number one is that some of us have big butts. Problem number two is that some of us have big mouths. We have big mouths. It's interesting to look at all the different types of sins of the tongue that are mentioned in Scripture. I, I'm giving you only half. Just Google sins of the tongue according to Scripture. It just goes on and on. You got lying and gossip and slander. Backbiting, negativism, saying the Lord's name in vain, saying mean words, saying piercing words, cursing, criticism, blasphemy, pride with our words, anger outbursts. And the last one I'm going to call loose lips. See, this is Zachariah's problem. What is loose lips? That, that's, have you, do you know anyone like this? Whatever they think, they say. They, they have absolutely no filter. I think it, I say it. I think it, I say it. They, do, they can't stop themselves. And that will, do you know that'll get you in trouble? Yeah. By the way, uh, uh, that phrase, I don't know if you know, but it, it is actually a phrase that comes from this poster. Let's put it up on the screen. Do you guys know where this poster started and where this campaign started? Loose lips sink ships. Have you ever heard of that? That comes from World War II. This was put together by the uh, War Department during World War II it was an advertising day campaign that they started for RGI's, our, our soldiers, the British soldiers and American soldiers. Because here's what they discovered was happening. So when there's war, every country will spend a, a certain amount of effort doing counterintelligence, which means spying. Because if we can find out what the enemy is doing, where, where they're where they weak, when they're going to attack, then we can prepare for that and we gain an advantage, Right. You want to know what some of the Germans did to gain information? Here's what they would do. They would get a German that spoke impeccable English, right? They'd put him in England, and then at night, in the evening hour, they'd send him to a bar. And they'd sit down next to another GI, they'd order a beer, and they'd say to the soldier sitting next to him, so, what's going on? And the other GI, the other soldier right he's eating some fish and chips having a beer he looks over looks like a soldier from some other you know company or whatever well, what's your next mission what are you up to and this soldier would just just tell him not even think twice that he was talking to an enemy spy and there is documentation that those communications those conversations a beer at a bar the germans took that information forwarded it to U-boats, and the U-boats sunk several allied ships. Loose lips sink ships. You do realize that loose lips also sink friendships. And they sink marriages. And they've sunk some of your careers. And they sink your reputation. And they sink your testimony. Here's the lesson. The lesson is this, learn to bite your tongue and shut your trap. It's good to have the pastor back, isn't it? Just lays it out as it is. Learn to bite your tongue and shut your trap. And I need you to turn to the person next to you. And I need you to say, he might, I'm not sure, but he might be speaking about you. Go ahead and tell him real quick. It's so much easier to point it out in someone else, isn't it? So much easier. James chapter three says that sometimes our word create fires. We all saw it when when um, when we had the fires lately, and um, you saw those videos where where people were were trying to were trying to get out of the town. And and people were turning this way and turning that way in their car. And they they had their phones and they were taping it. And and they, oh my goodness, where do I go? What do I do? And you could hear the stress. You could hear their their concern. And they would turn this way and there was fire. And they would turn that way and there was fire. Smoke everywhere. And I got a question for you. Are your words doing that to people around you? Are they causing stress? Are they causing pain? Are they causing destruction? And in some cases, it's just because we can't control what we say. By the way, why should we control what we say? Because sometimes what you think isn't true. And I need some time to process before I speak. And so do you. Sometimes what you think is true, but it's not helpful. Or what you say is true, but it's hurtful. It's interesting. Scripture says, speak the truth in love. But it does not say speak all the truth in love, which implication means there are some things that are true that you should nevertheless not say. Does that make sense? Well, thank goodness Zechariah didn't cuss at the angel or use the Lord's name in vain. I mean, those are the bad sins of the tongue. I mean, he said something he shouldn't have said, but let's just let him slide. Right. Not so quick. Verse 19 and 20 are the consequence. The angel said to Zechariah, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. In other words, what I'm telling you is from God. I didn't make it up. It's from God. And now, now you got to put in, the, in the, and now because you couldn't shut your trap. That's what he's saying. And now. You're going to be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens. In other words, you should have had enough self-discipline to shut your mouth. But because you couldn't, I'm going to shut it for you for nine months. Guys, some of us are loose lips or any of those other sins of the tongue. You're hurting your family. And you're hurting your church and you're hurting your place of employment. And you're hurting your own reputation in life. You've got to learn how to control that. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and it works on your tongue. Control your words. Now, some of us might have problem number one, we talked about, or problem number two. But all of us, number three, have a big responsibility. All of us. This is where I want to land. This is how I started out. It's the most important. Verse 16 and 17. I, I See, I skipped part of the story, the angel showed up at the table of incense. And then the next verse I read to you was Zechariah's question. But in between there, the angel speaks to Zechariah, and he says, I want you to know what your boy is going to end up doing and being. I want you to know the impact he's going to have. And he says this to him. He says, John will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will go on before the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, God is saying, listen... I'm going to do this miracle where God is going to become incarnate and he's going to take on the form of a man. He's going to willingly give up his privileged position in heaven and become man. I'm going to take care of that. But for the message of Christmas to have the impact that I desire it to have, I need someone to prepare the way. I need someone to help people take their next step closer to Jesus. I need someone to help them think it through and feel it through. Because this Jesus, salvation, Christianity thing can be confusing to some people. I need someone to help me out. John, it's going to be you this Christmas. And from then on, I'm going to depend on my people to prepare the way for everyone else. And that would be you. It's interesting to me. And I don't want to read into the passage, but it seems to me it's interesting the two components of people that John attracts. First of all, he reaches people and brings them back to the Lord. Implication at one point in time, they used to follow God. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of anyone right now that used to come to church with you? Used to go to youth group with you? Used to go to small group Bible study with you? They used to follow God. They no longer don't. Can you think of anyone? Guess what God needs from you? He needs you to help bring them back. Help bring them back. But it's not just the people who used to follow God. It's also going to people who have never followed God. And turning their hearts to Jesus. I can can do the miracle of Christmas, but I need people to prepare the way. So that the message of Christmas is received. Then we're done with baby John the Baptist. Finally, we start with the adult John, right? He starts doing his ministry. He starts fulfilling his prophecy. And we read right at the beginning of chapter three, starting in verse three, we read this. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness he went into all the country preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the world. Here it comes again. Preparing to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths for him. It's not that Jesus needs a straight path, it's that other people need the straight path. And all people will see God's salvation. And we're like, yeah, praise Jesus. Everyone's gonna experience God's salvation. No, not so quick. All of God's salvation is dependent on you and I preparing the way. Everyone doesn't get God's salvation. And in some cases it's because we're not taking our responsibility seriously. Do you guys know what a Zamboni is? You guys ever heard of that? We live in California, so we're not around snow and ice. A Zamboni, it's a fun word to say, isn't it? Zamboni. Everyone say Zamboni. Okay, let's get back to this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, uh, Zamboni is that big, it's a big machine that sits on the ice. It looks like, uh, like a, a sit-down tractor or a, a lawnmower that someone would sit on. And it's huge. And what they do is they use it to clean the ice, right? To make it slick, to make it smooth, to prepare the ice so that hockey players can play a game of hockey. Now, I'm not too much into hockey, but it, 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 I like all sports. So I don't know if you know this, but hockey has three periods, not two halves, three periods. So what they do is the Zamboni comes out, they clean the ice, and then they play hockey for one period, and then all the hockey players, they go into the locker room and they sit there for 15 minutes. You want to know why? So the Zamboni can come back out and clean the ice again. And then they play the second period, and then they go back to the locker room for another 15 minutes. You want to know why? So the Zamboni can clean the ice and prepare them to play another period of hockey. And then they come back and they finish the game. See, the game of hockey is no fun If there's chunks of ice on the the plane surface. You need to clean it. You need to make it slick. You need to prepare it so that the puck will go quickly and the skaters can move. What the Zamboni is to the game of hockey. You are to people who are far from God. You prepare the way. You clean the way. So that when they're ready, they will accept him. But some of us don't realize... God is depending on you to do that. Here's the lesson. And this is the main lesson I want us to get this morning. Your life, your words, and your attitude, they either prepare the way for Jesus to come into people's lives or they push people away from Jesus. There's no middle ground. Some of you are like, well, I don't say anything. Yeah, but see, do you realize that your silence communicates volumes? By never saying anything, you're communicating. I have nothing of value to share. These last two weeks, I wasn't just goofing off drinking eggnog. I was working on the next discipleship class, and one of them that we're going to do on apologetics. And so I spent one whole session, about 20-some pages, working on teaching on uh, different world religions, uh, different cults, how to objectively evaluate cults and world religions and how it overlaps with Christianity is very interesting. But in the midst of that study, I bumped into some very interesting quotes that apply to at least the second half of the lesson. This idea of pushing people away from Jesus, which seems so foreign to us. Mahatma Gandhi, who is considered to be um, a key figure, if not the founder of the, the Hinduism, Um, He was once quoted as saying this about Christians, about you and about me. I like their Christ. But I don't like their Christians. Do you realize Mahatma Gandhi at one point in time picked this book up and started to read it? And he was interested in the person of Jesus Christ. He was attracted to the person of Jesus Christ. What was in this book made sense to Gandhi. Do you want to know, according to his words, why he decided not to become a Christian? You want to know? Us. Us. You see, we focus on one theological word at Christmas. It's the word salvation. And it's a good word. It's an important word. It talks about reconnecting with God, which is significant and important. If you don't do that, you're in deep trouble. It's very important. Salvation. But when the world is looking at us, they don't want to hear about our salvation. They want to hear about what the rest of the New Testament is talking about. Sanctification. That's a big fancy word that means as I go through life, day after day, week after week, month after month, I become every day a little bit more like Jesus. My words, my actions, who I am as a person, it changes, it progresses. I look more and more like Jesus. The world doesn't expect you or me to be perfect, but they do expect to see progress. But here's the problem when the world looks at us and if we drop as many F-bombs as they do and we sleep around as much as they do and we smoke pot just like they do and we drink too much just like they do and we treat our wives and our kids just like they do and we cheat on our boss and cheat on our taxes just like they do. If we live our life just like they do, they question our salvation. Why would I want to follow your Jesus if he happens to make no difference in your life? Don't tell me we don't push people away from Jesus. I'm glad you're going to be in heaven. But do you realize that some of us are pushing others away from heaven? Friedrich Nietzsche was a German theologian. Brilliant guy. Absolutely Brilliant. He is still studying in universities today. And he wrote on the problem of suffering, on the problem of evil and pain. He also wrote a lot on the end of religion. He was not complimentary to Christians. Frederick Nietzsche said this I will believe in the Redeemer. That's Jesus. I will believe in the Redeemer when Christians start looking a little more redeemed. Jesus said it like this. Let your light so shine before men. That they may see your good deeds. And glorify your father in heaven. See what you say. And who you are. And how you live. Impacts what people think of Jesus. You either prepare the way. Or you push people away. I'm going to have Pablo come up. I'm going to wrap up. I started to think as we were, um, as I was studying John the Baptist, we have the birth of John and we have the adult life of John, but we don't have the middle. We don't, nothing about him being a toddler, nothing about being a teenager. But I I imagined, you know, I wonder if when John was eight or ten or, I wonder if there were times he would go to his dad and he'd say, Pop, tell me about that day in the temple when the angel told you that I was going to be born. Zachariah would tell him I went in and the light was on and it was the altar was there and the bread and he explained it all to him and then I was at the table of incense and, and when I was at the table of incense, that's when the angel showed up. Dad, what did he say? What did he say? I mean, that's that's like the highlight story for that family, isn't it? And then, John, he said that one day you would preach about a Messiah that was to come. A Savior that was to come. It's going to be you, John. It's going to be great. You're going to do great, son. Dad, tuck me in bed. Can you you tell me the story again? It's a great story. I wonder, though, when John became a preacher... When he started his adult ministry, I wonder uh, wonder if he realized that the Messiah that he was talking about, the Savior he was talking about, I wonder if he realized that that same Messiah, Jesus, was going to put his dad out of a job. Because you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we see in the temple. Jesus, when he comes, says, listen, the old covenant... The old way you connected with God, you don't need to do it anymore. There's a new covenant. There's a new gospel. There's a new way. Oh, and it looks like the old way, but it's, it's completely different. I wonder if John ever realized what he was talking about. Because you see, one day Jesus would stand before a crowd and he would say, I'm the light of the world. I'm your light. I will guide you. And I will direct you to go left or to go right. You can depend on me. I'm your light. And oh, by the way, I will leave the light on for you. Whenever you need me, however you need me, I'm here for you. Jesus also said at one point in time listen, all of you have sinned, all of you fall short of the glory of God, your your souls are stained. I am not only your living water, but I will wash you as white as snow. You want to talk about filth? I will clean you. I will clean you. He, one point in time, he stood before a crowd and he said, I'm the bread of life. Oh, forget your stomach. Now, I know you need to eat, but I'm more concerned about your soul. I'm concerned about your loneliness. I'm concerned about your stress. I'm concerned about your fear. I'm the bread of life. I will feed you and I will take care of you. But the most important thing you need to know about the old way is that I am the perfect Lamb of God. From now on, you won't have to depend on your pastor once a week to sacrifice a lamb on the altar for you for the forgiveness of sins. Hope that he gets it right. From now on the new covenant says I will be the Lamb of God. Trust in me and you will have the forgiveness of sins and you will have eternal life. The old way is gone says Jesus. I'm the new way. But you see here's the thing. No one gets to enjoy this. No one gets to benefit from this. Unless there's someone like John the Baptist that prepares the way. Someone who goes into your school because you see the classmates that sit with you the classmates that play on your volleyball or your soccer team they aren't in church and they don't know Jesus and they need you to help prepare the way to go back to your homes in a couple minutes because some of you came alone some of you left family members at home because they're not into God as much as you are and what God needs is for you to help prepare the way to go back to work tomorrow morning because that coworker, that acts the way they act, do you realize that the main reason is because they don't have Jesus? That's the main issue. Oh no, I, I know they're a little bit off, but it's Jesus they're missing. They need you to prepare the way. They don't get this until you prepare the way. Who's willing to do that? pray. As we wrap up, I want you to take a moment, allow the Holy Spirit to bring someone to mind. Someone that used to follow God or someone that doesn't follow God that you care for. You like them, you care for them. Let the Holy Spirit bring that person to mind. Now the question is this. What can you do? What can you say? Maybe you say nothing, but you pray faithfully. What are you going to do to help prepare the way for them? What are you going to do to help them take their next step closer to Jesus? Oh, no, they may not. They're not going to come to church next week. They're a long way away from that or a youth group. But how about help them take a step closer? What are you going to do? Take a moment think on that why don't you stand with me as we pray heavenly father we we love christmas it's it's an excuse for the whole month to eat food we like eating to hang out with people to have parties, to give gifts and receive them, and also, most importantly, focus on your Son, Jesus. As Christian, it's just, it's the best month of the year as a Christian. But today, you've reminded us that Christmas isn't just about what I get out of it. It's about what I'm willing to give. And in this case, it's what I'm willing to give to people around me that haven't connected with your Son, Christ. Help us understand and solidify it in our mind that we have a role to play in salvation, we have a role to play in helping bring people to Christ. Father, I, I, I pray, give us the discipline to know we, we shouldn't just run out of here, get on our phones and call people. We have to know what not to say and when to say it and how to say it or, or, or to not say anything but to do something. Father, give us wisdom. But most importantly, I'm praying right now. We are praying collectively for everyone you brought to mind. Pray that you would soften their hearts. Pray that you would draw them to yourself. Use us as you see fit. Father, we love you. Thank you for what you've taught us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. on all God's people said.